Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mmm, 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 mmm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Mm. <clears throat> Thank you very much for listening to Trilove, a literal roundtable podcast where we talk about movies we saw or people we met at the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast. You can find the Trilon at Trilon Cinema and at Trilon.org where you can get tickets to any showing, including one for the movie we're about to talk about. My name is Jason Daphnis. I am everything but the rocker panels, and you can find me at Nintendoofus. I'm Cody Narvison, coming to you live from the desert full of junkies where everybody is waiting to get well. You can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. I'm Harry Popeye Mackin, and you can find me at Shiitake Harry. Uh, I was... I was going to make a joke about how I was distinctly not Popeye due to his negative qualities, uh, but Harry went with Popeye. But So I'm just, I'm Aaron. Uh, you can, you can be cloudy. Harvey, please. I could be cloudy, but I think the, the, the not Popeye was the, the funny bit. Uh, cloudy is good. Yeah, I'm Aaron Cloudy uh, Grossman. You can find me on Twitter, RB, please. Although, really, I think I should be cloudy because uh, Roy Schneider in the 1970s bears a striking resemblance to my dad. Which means that if I had been alive in the 1970s, he might have looked something like me. So really, I, would, I, I, I think I have a claim on Cloudy. I literally thought it was James Woods. I was like, oh, it's going to be another fuck James Woods oh, cast. Jesus. And then it showed the face up, close up. No. And I was like, ah, that's Roy Schneider. Yeah. This has been a whole fucking roller coaster already. Today, we're talking about the 1971 William Creedkin film, The French Connection. And Aaron, I think, is going to tell us what it's about. Yes, French Connection, 1971, Friedkin, uh, based on the 1969 nonfiction book of the same name, written by Robin Moore, uh, won Oscars for Best Picture, uh, Best Actor for Gene Hackman, Best Film Editing, and Best Adapted Screenplay, also nominated for Best Supporting Actor for Roy Scheider, uh, didn't win it, eat shit, uh, Best Cinematography, and Best Sound Mixing. Um, Two police detectives, Jimmy Popeye Doyle, played by Gene Hackman, and Buddy Cloudy Russo, played by Roy Scheider. Follow a man named Sal Boca, who I didn't get the actor for because I'm a moron. Uh, that is Tony uh, LaBianco uh, playing Sal Boca. They follow him around the city of New York as Popeye believes that he may be connected to various mobsters involved in the local drug trade. Uh, the two police officers stumble into a criminal plan by the Frenchman Alain Charnier, uh, played by Fernando Rey, uh, the leader of the world's largest heroin ring to smuggle $32 million worth of the drug into the United States. And the two detectives struggle to gain more information about an impending crime that they barely comprehend. Wow. A wonderful summary. A fine summary. Give me me two fines. A French. A fine fine, 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 fine. fine summary. Yeah. A A, four and a a half star summary. A double fine summary. Uh, So I will give my quick run and then let you guys take it away and we'll we'll see what we can't come up with uh i really really liked the french connection i just got done with watching it this morning uh as i was saying before we got on the podcast absolute morning watches of movies especially <laughs> movies morning that, watches morning watches especially movies that might be tough to get through in an evening uh because they might start slow like 
the French connection, absolute banger movie to watch in the morning. Um, but I really, really enjoyed this. I think it, it, it like it, I loved the way that it parallels, uh, and like distinguishes sort of from the outset, the very French side of this story and the very American side of this story. Um, I love the way that it characterizes both leads. I love that Roy Schneider's literal cop name, like his human name is buddy and it's a buddy cop duo. That, <laughs> that I love to he for sure. Um, and the, uh, like, I just like, I like all the different threads it throws out and how singularly focused it stays on this one obsessive detective story. Uh, I think it really goes toward like the sort of camera out meta look at what at sort of what story it's telling. Uh, it obviously looks and sounds great. Um, I don't need to tell anybody that it's got a really, really, really good chase scene uh, through Brooklyn, I guess. What part of New York City is that? I'm, I'm no worldly man, but I really like this movie. Uh, I will rate it very highly when I do that on Letterboxd, but uh, do, try love code. Don't rate the movie before it uh before we talk about it so i'll toss to cody for your thoughts as well cool thanks jason um yeah this was my third time watching the french connection uh oh snap the, yeah uh the images i added this movie when i would think back on it um are maybe what you'd expect uh, it's been talked about but the you know i'd remember the big second act chase scene that the movie's more or less famous for and then gradually fill in the spaces on either uh either side with images of jimmy doyle or buddy russo um played by roy scheider uh just to make sure we have that uh ah! that name correct um or uh or uh, or charnier um and I, I i feel like that somewhat aligns with the primary intent of the film um apparently william friedkin prior to taking up the job of uh being this film's director discussed his career up to that point with another legendary director howard hawks who said friedkin's previous films were quote unquote lousy uh, and that he should quote unquote make a good chase, make one Get better his than any Freed can ass. <laughs> a <laughs> uh, make one better than anyone's done. Um, and I had always remembered that chase, uh, the big one. But this rewatch, uh, one thing it brought me was uh, it helped illuminate for me just how much of this movie is built around multiple different pursuits uh, of varying shapes and sizes and paces, and it made it clear how someone like our protagonist. Uh, Jimmy Doyle, played by Gene Hackman, lives his life solely within those chases. He puts uh, so much of himself into these pursuits and has remarkably little of himself left over. Fucking for, go, Cody. Hell yeah. <laughs> for the, uh, you know, the relationships and the moments that we see of him that fall into the spaces between those pursuits. And you counter that with someone like uh, Alan Charnier, who is living on the other side of that world. And he, as we we're shown, uh, thrives uh, in those moments much more so than Popeye, uh, those spaces uh, between the chases. Um, and uh, as we go, it became increasingly evident to me this time around that both narratively and spiritually, uh, these people are in uh, pursuit of some sort of payoff. Uh, and so that that's kind of what I latched onto this time, this expectation that being, uh, or, you know, when these people get to the end of each race, there will be good payoff or bad payoff, both for us as viewers uh, and for the likes of Jimmy Doyle, who lives for that fucking payoff, uh, whatever it may be. And it's this idea that those engaged with this type of lifestyle that the movie is showing and this type of hunger, uh, those people need to embrace the fact that once the chase is over, there might not be the payoff they're wanting or expecting. Um, in fact, there might be nothing at all. Uh, as we see, there might be an absence of payoff altogether. And so we ask ourselves, when these pursuits are at their end, uh, where do these people find themselves? And 
you know, where do we find ourselves as witnesses to this movie's pursuits, but also as the primary drivers in our own lives, engaged in our own chases? Um, so I guess all of this is a very roundabout way of saying I very much enjoyed revisiting this. Um, I will continue to revisit it in the future. And there were some ideas that came across more clearly than me this time around. And I'm looking forward to hearing what y'all got out of it, too. I think we can end the podcast right there, actually. That's uh, god, god damn. Uh, what you're saying reminds me a lot of how I feel about the two Altman films I've seen. Uh, so I am really, really excited to dig into some of your points. Ooh, very great call. Ooh. Uh, Harry. How do you follow that up? Man. I was like, I was sitting here thinking, it's like, I don't get to talk to my buds as much as I used to because of quarantine and whatnot. And it's like, man, y'all are so, it's so smart. It's so fun. Anyway. um, Yeah. I all sort of echo what you guys were saying. I will say that like, just in general, I think this really hit the spot for me. Um, I, we were talking about that a little bit before the podcast started about how, like I sat down to watch this last night and it was just like such a banger of a movie. It's just like an out and out thriller. But I think what separates this movie for me from a lot of 1970s crime thrillers, all of which I really love to one extent or another, just because like I'm absolutely gaga about New York shot in the 1970s. And if you have a car chase set in New York in the 1970s, I'm like 90% of the way there already. Um, This one stands above a lot of those other movies, like the seven up, which we saw last year also with uh, Roy Schneider or with um, a lot of those other movies, just because like, Oh, sorry. Roy Scheider. Is that it? how you pronounce that? There we go. Bingo. I, I yes, but it. Jason also said Schneider earlier. I know, I, I know. That's that's who Cody was calling out. Are well, you listening? I was, I was going to do another call out because I was going to bring up the 7-Ups, and now Harry is also uh, fucked Ooh. up my 7-Ups. Well, let's, let's let Harry finish. Continue. Uh, I, you know, uh, Cody said a lot of this really well, but I, I was really enamored with the class politics of this movie, the way that this movie seems to understand and if not openly indict, then is at least openly critical of cops in a way that so many stories of the 1970s were not. Um, And the way that it can hold the sort of mythology of, of the American cop in, in a way that, that a lot of the classic sort of crime thrillers of its time did while also leveraging that mythology to make some really good uh, trenchant points about, um, about what they're actually doing and what they actually represent as opposed to what they purport to represent and who is hurt by their actions and where their, where their motivations really come from and how they may be different or similar to others and what those motivations or their, their um, needs that are driving them affect and, and how they affect themselves. Right. Like Cody had said, it's like, it's a movie about junkies in the like most true sense, in the sense that everyone in this movie is, is sort of addicted to something and they're doubling down in terms of their, their addictions and their lifestyles. And um, it all comes to uh, a head in the form of the climactic chase, which is not the end of the movie, but is sort of the, um, the centerpiece of the movie. And it's like a literal visualization of the metaphor of the movie, right? Where it's like, here's, um, Doyle Popeye driving upstream to catch this runaway train that's reaching the end of the line, right? And it's like there's this this long trail that's leading towards destruction sort of inexorably and just going faster and faster and everyone in the world is getting in the way of it. And Popeye is is swimming upstream to try to not even put a stop to it, but just sort of like like 
be a part of it almost because he can't help but do it that way, even though his actions become more and more destructive the further he goes. And it's just such a really brilliant illustration of what this movie is going for. And it all culminates really well, both there and in the final scene and creates something that is like, that is like a really poignant um, manifestation of a lot of really classic tropes and ideas that haven't really been utilized for such an actualized purpose as frequently or very frequently that they have been here. I think that this is just like a really masterful use of those things. Um, And so I enjoyed watching it immensely, I guess. Yeah, um, we got the the Roy Scheider uh, correction. We got the reference to the Seven Ups. So I'm 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 half winging it here, but th- I, this movie legitimately did make me think of uh, the Seven Ups quite a bit. I think that was kind of partially because it's starring Roy Scheider, partially because we saw it uh, at the Trilon as part of the Trilon's tenth uh, anniversary celebration. Um, but that is another film uh, that that actually has a few other connections to this. Um, the uh, producer of The French Connection, as well as 1968's Bullet, uh, both films with very long chase sequences, uh, directed The Seven Ups, stars Roy Scheider. Um, it is marked by this incredibly uh, technical and impressive chase sequence. Um, I think that the criticism of The Seven Ups that I share, I think, as well, is that everything around that chase sequence was uh, kind of bullshit, kind of just there to justify that chase sequence. Um, that is not, I think, the reputation that the French Connection has. But when I have heard of the French Connection, it has always been in relation to either the ending or that train car chase sequence. Um, and I think that's a little uh, unfair to the film uh, because I think that everything else around that chase sequence is so good as well. And I think if you just have that oh, chase yeah. sequence, you have a, yeah, you have a cool movie like, hey, that's great. You know, there's some good acting in here. Um, but I think that everything else is so well done. I think that the way uh, that New York City is shot is so wonderful. I, I, I see like a lot of like David Fincher here. Um, but while David Fincher Ooh. is like such a, uh, he's such like a clean and crisp director that right. even when he's shooting grime, it feels like it's it's meticulous. Um, this feels, it doesn't feel like that. And so it feels, I think, a lot more authentic. Um, I like the locations they use here. I like how they use the subway. I like how they use the Copacabana, which is a, a nightclub that's been used in a ton of different films. Um, but this is a very good usage of that location. So this is a movie that feels uh, to me, uh, a person I've joked about this before, but like I am not a New Yorker. So we watch a lot of films about New York and I'm talking about my ass. Uh, but I, I think this movie feels authentic um, it feels really grimy and dirty and paranoid. Um, and I think that it all drives towards something really amazing at the end of it. Wonderful. Uh, I too am not a New Yorker, uh, but Minneapolis greatest city in the world, baby. Um, I do like it reaches that point. I just want to talk about the New York in this movie. We'll get to Hell everything. Yeah. No, that's second. a great jumping off point. But like, yeah, I mean, they say about every movie shot before 1985 that's set in New York is like, oh, the city is a character or whatever. I think that the this movie is like, quote unquote, realistic and authentic to a stylistic point, to a point of stylism, to a point where like it actually is a very active facet of what the movie is doing. And like, I think that can be said of all the locations in this movie. They show uh, Marseille and different parts of New York uh, and different parts of France, I guess. Um, but like just the fact that the 
places that these people are from, the places that they're shooting. I mean, from the from the from the get, like it starts in Marseille and everything's uh, beautiful, open blue skies, uh, and then just directly contrasted with like a dirty Brooklyn street and very like just noise all the time. Whoever did sound editing in this movie and sound design is is uh, god tier, but putting together all of those places with all these characters, just this milieu of of characters helps define, I think helps filter who like what traits you recognize in other, in other people throughout the movie. There's, there's a line that um, like the crime boss that Sal reports to, he's got a name Kramer or something like that. Uh, <laughs> I, I forget. Um, but he says to Sal when they're like discussing the deal and how they're going to hold off, but Sal doesn't want them to, cause it's once in a lifetime chance, half a million dollars for like $70 million return, whatever. Uh, and he's really pushing for it. And the crime boss uh, says, uh, he says to Sal or to the, to the crime boss, like, um, they're, he's everything they say they are like, they, they, they are fully like the, they live up to the rumors. They, there's no legend here that it, that is unaddressed, uh, and, and not matched. And the crime boss says like, how about you, Sal? Uh, are you, are you everything that they say you are? And then the scene what just a, kind what of a killer line. Oh it's, man, it's, that's such a good scene. Bonkers. Good. And like that moment that just hit me really hard with like these characters, in the in the places they are and the places they're from are defined and actualized by the the worlds that they're in and that's why i say that like these places both the marseille and new york shown in this movie are very very strongly present not just like because it's really good angles but because you see them through the characters in a way that like the warriors does because and i'm just babbling at this point the warriors does through like a very dark, cold, empty New York, which is way more bizarre, I think, than the one we see in this one, but equally stylized just to the opposite direction of, you know, that claustrophobia of the urban sprawl. And it you see the like the pieces that go into the baking of somebody like Popeye, uh, this sort of paranoid, obsessed, uh, addled human who is like just very much a typical New Yorker. Yeah, I, Popeye is such a realized character because of his like simultaneous uh, brittleness and brutality, and you get the sense that one feeds the other. You get the the sense that like he is right at his breaking point throughout this movie, but the fact that he is so fragile is also what makes him so tough, right? That those things are in perfect simpatico, where it's like the closer he is to breaking, the more dangerous he is. Uh, it's like a, he's he's got like this this animalistic quality to him that's really like really uh, bred in and, and good, but. Um, Jason, you made a lot of really good points there. Um, this movie reminded me a lot of The Friends of Eddie Coyle, which kind of does for Boston what this movie does for New York in a lot of ways, um, with the exception that – or the, the thing that makes them similar in my mind is that they both are really, really realized um, sort of like – arguments for that old screenwriting trope which is that you should start as late as possible in your story um both of these movies they feel like they're the last four chapters of a novel series that has been stretching back a decade right like you can totally see that like like popeye the character we meet in the 11th hour of his characterization and he's had a life up to this point, right? Like he and Cloudy have such an established relationship that we come by so quickly. The New York that we see in this movie is such a storied history to New York. And all of it functions as this perfect uh, world building shorthand such that you get 
through the grime, really, through through the dirtiness, you get a sense of the whole world in history as shorthand without us even having to establish any of it. It does it more perfectly than most movies that I've seen that try that attempt something like that, even more than something like Eddie Coyle, which kind of has to establish its own mythos. The mythos is actually there, and the, the movie makes the argument that it's the real New York, right? Like, this movie almost feels like a documentary in so many ways, where it, it feels like we're following actual cops actually doing their shit. When of course it's not right, but that's that's how it feels, and because of that, we're able to just focus on what really matters. And in fact, the frame of reference, the frame of focus that we get to see this movie on, actually becomes in and of itself um, a commentary, which is like what Cody said, where it's like we don't see these people at home, except with one notable exception, which itself feeds into. Um, the idea of establishing these characters as the workaholic sort of like um, hardliners, endliners that they are. Um, but like we see them only in their professional capacity in acting their jobs. And we see that there are no barriers between that, right? Like this whole movie starts when Claudia and Popeye go out to the Copacabana and they end up tailing a guy all night, right? Just because they have a hunch, quote unquote, and Popeye has all of these hunches. It's like these are people who who have grown into their professional lives have grown into their status as cops to the detriment of all else, to the eradication of all else. Right. We're like the idea that Popeye and Cloudy are people never really enters our minds, right? They're, they're functions of the state, they're operating bodies. Right. And that is itself terrifying. And I think that we get that, that sense from them, because of the world around them and we get the world around them because of that sense of them there's a really great interaction that goes both ways there and neither of those things would be possible without the other and i think the movie makes that work really well uh i agree i there are also moments that like i don't know you, you describe it as almost like a documentary because it does play so straight so many aspects of like the world and the characters and they just feel like they're confluent there are moments too where like they don't feel unearned, but they feel almost in contradiction to that, almost playfully. There, I'm thinking of the moment where Popeye is staking out, um, uh, hell, the bad guy, Fernando Ray's character, which I discovered he's, I don't know why I didn't realize it by his name, but he's Spanish, playing a Frenchman. I don't know, if, I don't know how the French feel about that, or or the Span or the Spanish, but um, where he's staking out uh the the French connections, um, just day to day, and he's outside of a really nice restaurant while uh the Frenchman is inside. And it's just contrasting like Popeye's eating really shitty street pizza and so drinking good. bad coffee. It, it is a great, it is a great scene. And one particular shot, Fantastic. one particular shot where he like, he can't even stand to drink the coffee. So he's outside and he throws it to the ground and the camera just quick, like zooms out to show beautiful, luscious, dark black cappuccino being poured into a tiny cup for the Frenchman inside of the thing. And it's just like, okay, so that is another moment where they're using elements of the world in very directed stylistic contrast to like, again, define and describe these characters. It's not like a new uh, tool. It's not like a new, but like the way that you described the way that it's using the tools it has Harry, both like uh, uh, metatextually and narratively and visually is masterful. And I think that is probably the best word. It's not like, it's not a new thing. Uh, maybe, maybe it was in 1971, but it's not a particularly new thing to me. It's not something that I haven't seen elsewhere, but it's just something that's very, I did not expect it to be that almost lighthearted in that moment because it is very like 
dark and just gets darker story. But those moments, I think, are as important to building the tone of this movie and to telling you the story of these characters as it's very like, you know, uh, pitter patter of uh, soft shoe against wet concrete moments that are very almost noir if they weren't so, uh, you know, camera juddery and gritty. Yeah, um, I'll make one more point and then I'll shut up for a little bit. But you made a lot of really good points there, uh, Jason, that I kind of wanted to speak to, which is that like, um, first of all, like, it's so interesting. There's a there's a great irony to the the things that we've been talking about where like these men that we see, they're such a byproduct of their world and of their histories um, that that stand out in such stark sort of dissociation from. Uh, the French connection, right? Like there's a, there's an amazing class politic here where like there, these are almost working class cops, but the movie can establish that while still maintaining this very uh, important notion that, that the cop part of that working class cop is much more important than the working class part. Because despite the fact that these characters are such fundamental parts of the world, they feel extremely isolated and dissociated from it, right? Like, Popeye and to a much lesser extent, Cloudy are bulls in a China shop wherever they go, right? They're, they're disruptors. They, they go into primarily black bars and beat the shit out of the um, proprietor and the um, customers because of course they do because they're cops, right? And they, they throw around these terrible racial slurs and they um, – well, Popeye does specifically. Cloudy doesn't. But m- even beyond those things, even beyond their disruption, there's just this – terrible isolation that these men have where like they're like night crawlers or creeps right where like most of this movie involves them on the outside looking in creeping around the city at night or taking these these 20 hour stakeout shifts where they're just creeping around the city in cars or on foot watching people and there's this this real like distance from the world that they inhabit and by sort of contrast, they only have real relationships with each other, right? Like this is a buddy cop movie. Like you said, like we know that Popeye has a partner. She's much younger than him, but we never see her. She doesn't have any speaking lines. We only see her bare ass running away from cloudy in one scene after she's handcuffed Popeye to a bed, which is also very funny and uh, notable part. But there, there's this great separation of these people. And like this idea that, that, this is a these are people who have been built by the world and separated from it by who they were built into right and i think that the movie does so much of that just visually and just sort of like um sensationally and it was really impressive to me um especially the way that that integrates with its commentary on um obsession and on sort of like the the class politics at play here and um oh the only other thing i was going to say is that it it is really cool that you brought up that this is a movie where it, it doesn't seem to be doing new things because that was totally Friedkin's whole like modus operandi when he created this movie was that like, I want to make an out and out thriller. I want to do it better. This is going to be an old movie and a classic movie, which uh, as an aside, like I could not stop thinking about how much better movies used to be uh, in the 1970s where like, this movie had like a $3 million budget and it made like $51 million and it was just a blockbuster. And it's just like, fuck, like imagine a world (laughs) where that was, where movies like the French connection were still coming out in movie theaters and we're still like making money like that. And we're still considered a a profit where like actors like Gene Hackman and Roy Scheider could still make movies like this. Like, Oh God, that was depressing. But anyway, 
um, a lot of the critical appraisal, particularly uh, on Wikipedia, um, is saying that despite the fact that it, it is repurposing so much extant but existing tropes and material, it feels fresh and it feels new. And that is such an interesting thing to dig into. And I think that you're getting at why, right? Which is just that like, it does it so well and it does it so purposefully that it gets us to not only reassess those ideas within this story, but in the sort of like, I make reference to this too often, but like the T.S. Eliot sort of tradition in the individual talent, it gets us to reassess what those things are doing in general, such that when you watch The French Connection, you kind of start to rethink what all of the other thrillers like it were doing. And I think that that's a really uh, fantastic um, accomplishment for a movie like this. Uh, Definitely. Um, Just chiming in on a couple of points that uh, you guys have covered uh, really, really well. Um, up to this point, Jason, you kind of alluded to it earlier, how we get like, it's, uh, important and great that we see both sides of, you know, we, we see Charnier's outfit and we see, uh, uh, Popeye Doyle's, um, you know, we see his arc, um, and Harry, you as well, like commenting on how, like very correctly that this movie feels like the last couple of chapters of a longer story. And like the, the fact that we do get to see, both sides of this but we get to see both sides of the story that in itself like it's very basic like a basic thing to think but it, it like it's totally true and it sets it apart from stories of this ilk right like the these sides are not trying to figure each other out because they've displayed that like they already know each other so well and that plays into the, the tedium of the 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 pursuits that are not as flashy you know the the late night or rather all night stakeouts, like the reason that we are afforded the opportunity to see uh, Popeye and Cloudy sit in a car and wait for something to happen is because these characters have already been characterized uh, within themselves and like amongst each other, like A knows B and B knows A. And we're more or less just seeing the fallout of that. And it works. uh, It works super well, I think. So just reiterating that. And then the other bit, um, uh, again, another thing that you mentioned, Jason, just like the the buildup of and the characterization of New York um, as a setting and as a character. And we've talked a lot about uh, that chase and I'm going to continue to do so. But those two things feed so well into each other. I think I, I got thinking seeing this chase for the third or so time, why this chase works so well and why it is so well remembered and I, I, I tried to map out like the, the stakes get periodically raised. Um, you know, a few people die uh, over the course of this chase. Um, there's a lot of uh, damage and, and carnage and things like that. Um, we, I, th- I think the fact that we see more and more of, uh, I do believe it's Brooklyn. Uh, the, the fact that we see more and more of this city as we go, it's this weird sort of back end mapping um, uh, for me mentally. You know, I like always having a, a mental map of, of, you know, a movie um, that's very important to me because uh, I, I'm not good with geography and navigating. And we're just going along the straight line following uh, a subway uh, or rather just, you know, a, a train. And we see more and more of the city and it becomes more than just man versus man. It's, you know, uh, the the uh, the opposing side jumps into a train and it becomes, you know, train versus car um, and it, like eventually the city gets brought into it too, right? Um, the blanking out on his name because I suck. Um, uh, Pierre, uh, Nicoli, Nikolai, I, uh, again, I'm bad. Uh, but 
like he he encounters a bunch of New York residents, and it's that whole like that whole Spider Man thing. You know, you mess with one of us, you mess <laughs> with all of us, and it's this uh y- you know uh, intruder versus city type of dynamic in that sequence. That again, just like stakes being raised into more than just you know this is a a, a case of a, a police officer pursuing um a suspect or pers- pursuing a, a criminal, and I think that's why it works so well. It's like he's an outcast in the system too, right? And there's almost a weird parallel between he and between the cops and the robbers in this case, where they're both like outsiders looking in. Definitely. Uh, can we, Cody? You've remarked on how uh, obviously the, the big chase scene that everybody talks about is the one that you'd remembered and that left an impression on you the first time you watched it. This being your third watch through, what did you think of the on foot chase between Popeye? and charnier the one where he ends up giving him the the slip by getting back on the train uh i I found myself really found myself really impressed by that scene too not for the level of coordination that you know the later chase seems to have but like just how compelling it is that's the turning point for me in this movie is when it comes from like being a really gritty character piece to well that and just very thrilling uh very like blood pumping engaging elements start to come into the movie at that point what did you think of that um uh yeah i love that question i it 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 goes back to this whole you know that that big that visually um heightened chase that everyone remembers is boosted in other ways by these other uh quote-unquote chase sequences that maybe don't get as much recognition or attention uh i'm thrilled that that was sort of the turning point for you that uh i love that sequence as well and that is one of the more uh tedious uh cat and mouse um sequences where we're afforded that because these you know these two characters know each other so well it adds a different kind of texture uh that the you know the the other you know the other kind of verbally you know these characters aren't talking to one another um but you know it, it adds something that uh the, the you know the car chase sequence doesn't give you um it still gives you that payoff right and the the I would like, I don't know, depending on your sensibilities, like the payoff you get from this sequence with uh, Charnier giving him the wave uh, as he um, slowly goes away on that train is like, I don't know, maybe the payoff of the movie. Like I have that. And then it comes back. And yeah. And then it comes back uh, in his like little final frame at the end of the movie. Like that is so intentional uh, and brilliant and uh the like the the other scenes are like that as well right like the stakeout offers you um kind of false payoff in the form of the arrests of uh criminals who are not related to this case but then the like the car being 120 pounds overweight after they weigh it like that is like that is its own type of uh payoff that again bolsters the sequences and makes them uh worthwhile um, even though the process of them getting there, as you, uh, uh, fellas mentioned, you know, watching movies in the morning, um, may- maybe makes this a bit of a different, uh, better experience because of that tedium. But I think I, I rather, I would argue the, the payoff that we get at the end of these, these narrative beats is as important collectively, if not more so than the show stopping sequence that maybe the movie is built around in that, that car chase. That, uh, that on foot chase sequence i guess there are several the one that ends with uh uh charnier kind of waving out of the subway is 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 so good because it's it's very comical it's kind of slapstick at times it's very Um, funny i mean it's it's it is very funny how much popeye who is a character who i think we are kind of supposed to detest and i I think if you don't (laughs) test him 
something's maybe a little off. With you, you maybe didn't get this movie super well. Yeah, but but the way in which he just continuously fumbles to to trail this man in an effective manner is is so comical. And I think the the galaxy brain take about this scene, which is actually I think correct, and the, the the one of the a correct take about it is that this is the scene that shows that he is so invested in this that he is carelessly making mistakes, right? Where where he is so right. invested in proving himself to his police department uh, and also proving himself to himself uh, that he, despite the fact that he, he must know, I mean, any competent human being would know halfway through that, that this guy knows that I am following him. uh, I am caught here. uh, But he just continues going for it because he can't do anything else. It's all he knows how to do is to just keep pushing for it. That's really well said. Um, I, I couldn't stop. And I'm, I'm so sorry about this, but like Popeye is a runaway train. Right. Like literally like you, you said, Aaron, that um, he can't help it. This is all he knows how to do is continuously double down and continuously um, invest. Right. Like like a junkie. Right. He's, he's addicted to this uh, this feeling. And it's because that's the only thing he knows how to define himself as. Yeah, I, I think that the theme of addiction specifically around his character uh, is is you know, the, obviously the the main scene that reinforces that is the one where he's out in the snow and the criminals are inside and it's, you know, comparing and contrasting them. They sell drugs. He does not do drugs himself except for alcohol, which he consumes constantly. He's, he's shown to be an alcoholic. Um, and I think that that, you know, it might be easy just to look at that one scene with the restaurant, but I think that over and over again, this film is contrasting uh, the drugs that these criminals are making and his own activities and, and just need to, right. to solve this case. Uh, and sorry, I'll let you go in a second, um, Cody, but, but like, it's also, it's so interesting and so like descriptively material, the way that that addiction is characterized, like everything is so intentional and purposeful. Like Cody, you were talking about like, like how it's about the, the car being weighed literally materially is, is what gives them their break in the case. And there are so many details like that, that are so well characterized where like even the drug that they choose is is heroin right and in heroin sort of like contrasting a lot of the other street drugs like crack or um uh meth or something like that it's like kind of a um like a not a delicate i don't know what you would call it but like it's a it's a um it's an expense it's an expensive drug right like that's that's not a drug that is that is necessarily street level and not necessarily i mean like the people who sell this are international crime lords who are very wealthy they literally cavort with uh film stars that's like kind of the point of this movie and so like even that is sort of like this is like a designer addiction right and it kind of similar to like cops cops like enjoy a status and it's the status itself that is addicting to them in some sense right and i think that that this movie integrates that with police brutality and with the the sort of like hollow uh like terrible bullish ferocity of Popeye and the isolation that it affects um, and is affected by really well, where like we see the fallout of addiction throughout this movie uh, visited upon Popeye and Cloudy, and then eventually visited upon their victims over and over again, who are increasingly number uh, increasingly innocent bystanders and eventually even other cops, right? Like that's the, the climactic scene of this movie. Um, and so like there, those parallels are completely extant throughout the entire film. Um, 
and and make this really good point about obsession and addiction and um getting sort of like blinders on and investing too much in a, a certain way of life or a certain idea about yourself and how destructive that becomes especially when it's applied to power dynamics and especially when you're given um power and prestige for it and there's a really good uh sort of like association between the criminal and cop element here that is making a really good point about cops and robber stories in general i think and i think that's where a lot of the big themes that are so reconstructive and so um revitalizing come from uh i think you're right um that was a a great breakdown and i did want to stay on uh jimmy doyle just a little bit longer um i was more so just curious um what you guys thought about our introduction uh to popeye as a character that first scene of him where he is uh, uh you know he's he's undercover uh i guess um he's dressed up as santa and uh shortly thereafter engages uh in a foot race and then has that sort of that uh interrogation sequence on the street with uh with buddy russo um and we, we kind of see more of their uh you know buddy copy relationship uh did that do anything for for any of you or did it set any like expectations uh, for you fellas about who this guy was um i i i guess i'm just curious what sort of tone that set for you yeah i guess it like it defied a little bit of what i thought this movie was going to do for context i saw uh the conversation a few years ago and that's probably one of the stronger uh more iconic i guess uh roles of Eugene hackman in my mind so i was expecting something a little bit more and you know not to compare the two at all, but like the intro scene to the conversation and the intro scene to the French connection are uh, very different tonally, especially, especially because in the French connection, obviously like there's a certain comedic element. You even hear I diegetically some other New Yorkers laughing as Santa's running down the street, uh, obviously like a haggard detective uh, in, in hot foot pursuit. Um, I guess it set a more like a strangely lighter tone. It helped me put my guard down a little bit about what the movie, the movie was going to end up being, which is obviously, like I've said, very like much darker and grittier than the front scene would have, would have led me to believe Um, about the character. It didn't honestly tell me too much, except that he likes to swear and that he's like very committed to his job. Maybe that's all it really needed to do though. Yeah. I mean, it, it does a thing that the, um, the chase sequence that we talked about a little bit earlier where he is, um, bamboozled by, um, the drug Lord does, which is that like, it characterizes Popeye as somewhat ridiculous, right? Like he, he's a, he's a semi farcical character, but the fact that he is this sort of like, like kind of Don Quixote, like police detective doesn't make him any less, intimidating in fact it makes him worse right because like the fact that he is such a like a bull in a china shop is actually kind of terrifying and i think that that's what the physicality sold really well for me both in this scene and throughout is that like here's a here's a guy who who is dressed up as santa and ends up like taking on a high-speed chase or like a, a foot chase through new york city dressed as santa which is on the face hilarious right but it also ends with him beating the shit out of the fleeing guy Right. And to the point where Cloudy's like yelling at him, like, don't kill him. Like it's he's had enough. Right. Like they end up uh, taking this guy down and just beating the hell out of him. And it's like it's it's frightening. Right. So that establishes a really good intersection of who we see Popeye to be and and the like the utter lack of sentimentality that this movie has for police work. We're like 
like Popeye is not characterized as a intelligent analytic sort of like Sherlockian detective, right? Like this is a, this is much more in the realm of like kiss me deadly or something like that. Where like this dude is a bully and like exists to be a bully and his job allows him to enact that sort of physicality on people in a professional power having capacity. And that is seen as something that is both ridiculous in this movie and something that to be very afraid of. And I think that that is, is uh, demonstrated very effectively. Nice. Um, yeah. I, you both covered kind of my thoughts on it uh, pretty comprehensively. The only thing I'll add in is uh, there's a part of me that really wants to read into the Santa thing. Um, like a whole lot. Santa Ooh. being, um, you know, like a, uh, a mythical, uh, thing that uh, people believe in, um, largely dumb people uh, and children. But uh, th- this idea of damn, uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know. My brain's broken. The this idea that the movie is uh, setting up Popeye to be this this sort of ideal uh, that is eventually yeah. that is eventually deconstructed uh, and unpacked to great lengths um, over the subsequent scenes of Popeye that the French connection shows us is like an interesting challenge that I, I think the movie sets for itself where, you know, the, the first time we show you this cop, he's doing cop things that he's dressed as Santa uh, serving people food at a hot dog stand. If I'm remembering that correctly, I might be wrong. And then like, it only gets worse uh, from there. Like in the very immediate following minutes, um, as he, uh, you know, beats someone up, um, and, uh, calls people, uh, by racial slurs. Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, that, that still sticks with me and I'm glad y'all got kind of the same things out of it. Uh, I put my hand up and then realized other people had some things to say. So you go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to say that uh, I, maybe this is just my own, you know, uh, just my own personal relationship with Gene Hackman films, but, I was, I guess, going into this movie kind of expecting him to be a powerful and wealthy real estate magnate who uses his power and wealth in order to take down the hero known as Superman uh, due to his <laughs> very good point. Luther in 1978's Superman the movie. But really, he didn't come off like that at all, and it was a bit disappointing. Super fair. Well, I that's think. a matter of like chron- chronology, right? Like 1978, that was seven years after this movie. Every role he inhabited after 1978, actually, that's the subtext, is that he is on a mission to kill Superman and uh, and, and the royal grand land wherever he can. Yes. Uh, welcome to Mooseport ants. as well. Ants. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. well, uh, there, Mooseport, royal Tenenbaums and Ants are we, the funniest. We, uh... <laughs> we've opened this stupid door. Um, I find it funny that Roy Scheider's character in this movie, Buddy Russo, uh, could be seen as like a, a a canon prior template for the character that he plays in uh, in Jaws, Martin Brody, who is like he escaped <laughs> the inner city. He's trying to get away from the hard same life character, being, dude. It's the same character, man. Uh, I, I love that. Um, the the interesting and the rest of this movie for I mean, so much of what we're talking about is is just Popeye's character because it does like over time funnel us toward solely him. It starts as like somewhat buddy copish, obviously with somewhat focus on, on Popeye, but eventually like Rush Scheider, uh, buddy Russo ends up getting like almost completely sidelined for like a couple of really long chase scenes. Uh, some really like character building stuff with, um, with Popeye, the whole like, uh, sniper scene shootout, everything from that point on until they like set up another, uh, sting is, is like buddy is gone. 
Um, and I'm wondering to, I'm wondering what the, I guess the crew thought about like putting him out of the picture for so long until like they're tearing down the car. Because to me, it was like almost the director writer, the whole crew was looking at like to parallel them, to show them, to show, uh, I guess Popeye as a foil, um, might've made us empathize, sympathize, humanize, uh, Roy Scheider's character, Buddy Russo a little bit too much. We're like, we're not trying to give either of these people superhuman, not superhuman, but like, uh, incredibly empath- empathetic identities and to like position Buddy as like the good version, the good cop to Popeye while it's based in reality. Like this is quote unquote based on a true story was not like would have risked doing something that yeah. would have altered the course of the movie a little bit too much in my mind. But I don't know if like that held any weight, if his inclusion or, or removal from the movie for those pretty pivotal scenes did anything for, for anybody else here. Uh, I think what you laid out, Jason is essentially what I took away from that as well, where the, uh, you know, having buddy Russo uh, hold equal narrative weight as, you know, presence like Jimmy Doyle might create an entirely different message. You know, th- this is not a story about these two cops working together, having an equal partnership, having equal influence over one another and coming out at the end of the day, being like better people for it. Um, you know, Cloudy is uh, like a good influence on Popeye uh, when they're together. But I like the Thing that we're that the, we're supposed to take away from the French Connection is that Jimmy Doyle's, uh, you know, uh, relentlessness and his, you know, uh, runaway trainedness is, uh, like it, it's it's overpowering and it's not something that can be. It's not it's not a train that can be halted by Cloudy's uh, emergency brake. Uh, you know, whatever metaphors we want to get into. Um. So yeah, Damn, it's, Cody. You know, uh, it's something that, you know, I obviously would have liked to have seen more uh, of Roy Scheider and like the fact that his character was sidelined, but Scheider still got an Academy Award nomination out of it speaks to yeah. like what he brought to the scenes, like, you know, his his utility in this movie pound for pound and maybe like is a result of audiences also wanting to see more of him as well. You know, more of his his good uh, calming influence, but that is just speculation for me because yeah, this movie yeah. came out a couple decades before i was well, born man, you know, the man looks better in a bomber jacket than any white man in history also yeah <laughs> next to leon kennedy and resident Evil Four. thank you uh the, right. of course the name roy comes from the norman england name for king so i mean connect the dots people it's it's not Jeez. hard to see I, I think I have a bit of an opposite take that i'm still maybe kind of working out but i think in tying with the uh, drug metaphors here and addiction metaphors. I think that the character of Cloudy to me kind of acts as an enabler for Popeye. Um, and that I, I do think there are moments when he maybe makes the outcome of a scene better than it would have been if he wasn't there. But for the most part, he does kind of enable what Popeye does when he, when they go into a restaurant and start harassing all of the black patrons, uh, you know, Cloudy certainly doesn't say no to that and does assist as Popeye is kind of the one in charge there. He says at one point, I go with my partner, right? Yes, and he, he constantly goes with his partner, despite very clearly uh, not buying into a lot of the things that he's saying. Um, I think that that his main characteristic is his his lack of agency and steering anything that happens in the film itself. And he acts as a supporting character to a character whose kind of main 
uh, characteristic traits are violence uh, and and addiction. Um, so I think the film is kind of critical of him in that manner. Getting back to the original question about the film sidelining him, um, I think that's just what the film has to do, right? Like if if this character is just acting as an enabler, uh, when the main character gets his big chase scene, you just got to let the character get the chase scene. Mm. Um, and so this to me is very much a Gene Hackman movie with Roy Scheider as... I mean, and this is how it worked with the awards and stuff, but Roy Shutter is very much supporting uh, to Gene Hackman. And I think that is, is my mind very pointed. It's interesting. I'm going to do the classic sort of try love synthesis here. Uh, um, fuck, uh, I think that, I think that he, he serves both functions in some capacities, right? I mean, like, I think it's important in the first act that we see that um, Buddy is not an addict in the way that Popeye is an addict. Uh, Popeye is the person who is constantly driving their actions and has to uh, talk the reluctant um, buddy into it. Um, Popeye is the character who has an sort of an outcast, ostracized um, reputation around the police academy. But Buddy is the person who vouches for him, and Buddy is the person who believes him, and whose faith in Popeye ultimately is what gives them the break in their case. So it's kind of both, right? And even the sidelining of Roy Scheider's character, uh, Buddy, in the second act kind of speaks to that, where like, in the first act, they're on the outs. You can feel their camaraderie fraying as Popeye becomes more and more haunted and driven and obsessed. And then in the second, Popeye has moved away from uh, Roy's, Scheider's character entirely and sort of in, uh, operates in his own universe as even more of a renegade. And then in the final act, we get that final act of enablement on uh cloudy buddy's part and one thing i really like about that is it plays triumphantly in the moment but it ends up being tragic in my mind right because that that break is what leads directly to the final tragedy of this movie which is that uh uh, spoilers i guess but popeye kills another cop by shooting too quickly in the sort of surrealist warehouse that they end up inhabiting at the climax of this movie. And then he has a final confrontation with uh, the drug dealer that he's been pursuing. And we don't see the result of that um, confrontation. And the movie has this incredible moody, terrible sort of uh, faux cliffhanger ending that I really like that, that really plays that theme really well. But um, I think that, that cloudy, Cloudy's character is really interesting because he has such utility and such an economy of utility because he does so many different really important things at once while still being such an obvious sideline character. So that's really interesting. This this whole movie has such a great economy of uh of utilization. Uh definitely. And after hearing uh Aaron your breakdown of that and Harry your your synthesis uh, as it were, I pretty comfortable revising my take. Uh, uh I I I think that uh, analysis of Buddy Russo as a character makes a lot more sense. The one of my, I guess uh, I'm, we're just saying favorite parts of the movie and things that are important and good. Um, that last uh, confrontation, you know, that la- uh, Popeye's final test, as it were, um, after he, you know, accidentally shoots the Fed Molderig, um, thinking it's Charnier. Uh, Doyle has this last kind of mini conversation with Russo. It's not so much a conversation as Doyle saying, like, I've really got to get this guy. Like, this is what I'm living for. brutal, man. Yeah, this is what I'm living for. And I think maybe, uh, well, and Russo doesn't really, I don't think he says anything really other than, like, you killed 
uh, you killed Mulderick. Like <laughs> you shot him. That last look he gives Doyle before he goes off into his, you know, that figurative prison uh, that he walks along. That last shot that we see of Doyle. Um, uh, that, that's great and like and definitely tragic and maybe marks one of the 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 turns or mini turns for cloudy realizing the function he serves as maybe an unintentional uh enabler uh you know up to that point um perhaps but uh yeah that great points all around and it's important to consider the ways in which cloudy is symbolic of the entire institution of policing right i mean like like cloudy yeah. is the only person that uh, Popeye has any rapport or any camaraderie with. And the reason they have that rapport is because they're both professionals and they're partners, but they're partners in a professional capacity, right? So like their dual roles with each other are what give each other their self-definition and also their sort of um, acting playbook. Um, I'm glad you brought up that final scene because it's so brutal, man. I mean, like we should, we should talk about how the fact that um, Popeye killed Mulderick it's not the first time he's been directly responsible for a cop's death. That is his backstory is that earlier in the, in the story or before the movie starts, uh, Popeye had a hunch and his hunch, one of another, one of his obsessive hunches directly led to the cop being killed. That's why he has the outcast status that he has at the police account or at the um, police headquarters. And this is just the cycle completing again, right? You get the feeling that this has happened over and over again, and it's going to happen again. Yeah. And this this endless um, addiction of cops and robbers that Popeye is is enacting over and over again, becoming more and more subsumed by his role of this this bullish detective who will stop at nothing, is only producing more death and suffering for everyone around him, and. Uh, like the the uh, it's it's really um well done because it's so purely descriptive it doesn't feel preachy it doesn't feel prescriptive but at the same time it's such an accurate um unpacking of what the ostensible criminal justice system is really like all about which is the mm-hmm. idea that like the idea that any of this is just the idea that it's about justice for anyone most of all popeye is absurd by the end of this movie right like like the the idea that he's chasing after this drug addict for any uh heroic or just reasons is so obviously thrown out the window by this point that like at the end of the movie implies at least in my mind that he murdered the guy right i mean like it said that that the dude goes missing and nobody ever saw him again and he's believed to be in france but Mm. it's like there was that gunshot and it's like yeah like popeye is is at the end of this movie, a literal murderer. And earlier in the movie, he shot a man who was running away in the back. And it's just like, this is about like the, the making and how the addiction to power and the addiction to status and uh, role does that and uh, enacts that. I, uh, by, really by any statistical metric, uh, Popeye is, is frankly kind of a, a shit cop, right? And just real bad track record, uh, getting right. shot <laughs> just, just real dog shit. Uh, I, I didn't interpret the ending that way. I, I definitely interpreted that as, you know, he fired at him and he got away. Uh, but yeah, I, I, the ending is, is confusing, but I think also specifically the, like the, the, not the, the pre-credits, the, I don't know, what do you call it? The, where they all end up now is such like a a seventies thing. Like, yeah, yeah. I I gotta say, like I I'm trying to think of like of films I've seen in the Trilon. Like that's up there with like the end of like 
The Graduate uh, or like the end of uh, Kurosawa's Cure, which is a movie that I, I mean, I res- referenced uh, Fincher earlier. I I think that the end of this, it must have uh, influenced oh, yeah. in some manner. Man, uh, it's so good. It's so fucking dark. It's it's so perfect. Yeah, this is this is the top five Trilon movie endings for me, I think. Save it for the golden berries, Aaron. Uh, the, I guess, the way that Harry, like, for some reason, by the time that the end of the movie rolled around and Mulderig dies, I had forgotten the backstory of Popeye as, like, having had a bad hunch that got a, another cop killed. Uh, so, like, just hearing, just remembering that makes uh, Buddy's reaction to Mulderig's death. That, like, really, it, in the moment, it was just, like, incidental, like, he realizes his partner's killed somebody, but, like, makes that a fucking tragic moment, doesn't it's it? It's brutal, dude. Buddy, Buddy looks at his partner, his his friend, his best friend, and realizes what the fuck he's done again. Like, realizes that this is an unstoppable thing. Maybe he had, like, a hunch before, about, or he had been hinted at before. Like, there are a couple scenes where Buddy is, like, seen as increasingly not in step with how Popeye feels about the case and his pursuit of it. But in that moment, realizes that he's on a completely different track. He realizes that he's completely off the rails, uh, like like a runaway train, like you said, and realizes that this is this is the end point. This is the the last stop of what they have been doing all along. This is what right. Popeye is and what he does. A natural end point. Yeah, Cody. Yeah, really quick. Um, there there is a sequel to the French Connection. Uh, it is the French uh, Connection. Uh, two French, two connection. Uh, directed by. <laughs> Uh, John Frankenheimer, uh, released in 1975. Um, so, you know, quicker turnaround, uh, relatively speaking compared to like big movies that much later down the road got sequels as like a a quick, you know, cash grab. I have not seen French connection to, I know very little about it other than what I just relayed and what letterboxd has as kind of the one liner Popeye Doyle travels to uh, Marseille to find Alain Charnier, the drug smuggler that eluded him in New York, which, uh, oh, so I guess canonically he does get away. I have, I, I don't know. I, I have mixed feelings as far Scam. as, Scam. I, yeah, I, as, yeah, as far as like canon goes. And, uh, I, I don't know what, um, Friedkin's response, uh, well, I guess he didn't write the movie, but what the, the writers and, uh, people responsible for the first one, uh, what their feelings are regarding the sequel. If they're like, nah, uh, fuck that alien and aliens are the only uh, movies that here that are canon Prometheus and alien covenant and company are thrown right out the window. Um, I don't know what to think, but I just figured I'd throw that out there as uh, yeah, a little nugget. You know, I mean, I should be clear that like, I don't think that the movie textually firmly establishes that Popeye kills Charnier. I don't really think it matters. I mean, the open endedness is the point. It's it's the total lack of satisfaction in any case for anybody because that's Absolutely. what this is. But that was my takeaway, I guess, just because like that worked really well for my reading of it. Is that like Popeye kind of like takes this this final step where it's just like, oh, like we're finally going to drop any pretense that this was about police work or like legality or justice at all, and that's what worked for me. But he gets there either way, right? So it doesn't really matter, but. Uh, that's fine. As our discussion uh, of the hidden shows, uh, you don't, you definitely don't. It is, it is try love canon that you don't have to take direct uh, to Ooh. DVD or or somewhat shittier uh, sequels as canon uh, in order to satisfy your own uh, thematic reading of a film. So, Harry, I, I support your reading 
whether he uh, kills him or not. I was going to bring up French Connection too. I didn't. I didn't want to because I thought it might be like a Cody's Noties thing. Uh, but I'll just I'll just say it. that movie has a seventy six on Rotten Tomatoes, which is like wildly high for what I kind of anticipated it being. Uh, so I don't know. Maybe it's worth checking. Hey man, yeah, but... I Sanjuro has a higher Rotten Tomato score than Yojimbo does. So yeah, we uh, this again. Uh, Holy shit. I am. I, I guess just the, the phrase "the French Connection" too is the funniest, dumbest collection of words. Yeah, it's, it's so fucking funny, dude. <laughs> the fact that it has a sequel at all, let alone what it establishes or doesn't establish. Um, I God, what a dumb fucking movie to have a sequel. Shut up, yeah, Hollywood. I take yeah, everything man, back that too. I said yeah. about that. <laughs> uh, I it, it just in wrap before we head into our uh, special segment at the end of every episode. Um, there is a moment that I can't get out of my head when. Popeye and Buddy are in a are staking out one last time. It's in their final stakeout. It's like four a.m. and Popeye is holding a watch, staring at the watch face, and he says, "What time is it?" <laughs> he asks Buddy what time it is, and it's just like distillation of the character right there. And Buddy has to remind him it's like four after ten. It's four after ten. I don't know that that moment. I thought was really funny. Another one of those like almost throwaway comedic moment of relief almost but totally in line and lockstep with the rest of the movie um Wait, what the what the f- his name is is buddy russo his nickname is clap what the fuck is buddy it's like buddy he has, is, his, he, is his human name his, you can't call uh, somebody buddy his name mr and mrs russo, mr and mrs oh, russo are, are are in the hospital minutes after he's born buddy? and the doctor asks does he have a name and they say his name's buddy that's you can't. That's a. It should be like John Buddy Russo or John Cloudy. John, John Buddy Cloudy Russo. It is. It is a lot of nicknames. Also, we should talk about real quick that uh, nicknames are a really great uh, again economy of presentation or economy of uh, like motif way of establishing uh, simultaneously uh, those two cops like camaraderie and also their dissociation from everything else. Like they don't even have human names anymore. They have like titles, basically, like these these like insular, like tribal, like uh, designations, right? Where like they're almost like like flyboys or something. It's like it's Buddy or it's uh, Cloudy and Popeye. It's like Iceman and Maverick. Good God. Uh, okay, well, is that the point where we can pivot to our next segment? Ah, our next segment, which we like to call. <gasps> Cody's no Cody's. Uh, it's okay. It's been a couple weeks. A uh, good attempt. Um, also, just quick side note: the fact that any of you fellas would, you know, consider before uh, breaching a point uh, as you fear it might infringe upon the noties is just the sweetest goddamn thing I have ever heard. Um, I do that with random trivia. Yeah, there's a lot of times where I'm like, I'm not going to bring that up because just in case. Yep. 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 Uh, you were right to bring it up in this case, though, because uh, today um, uh, I, well, I was hoping to make it a big uh, special thing because we were originally going to have a guest, um, but we can just do tri-libs uh, amongst ourselves. Um, that can still be fun, probably. Um, so for those who are unfamiliar, uh, tri-libs is our attempt at um, measuring up to the Mad Libs uh, fun time game that uh, I guess is still going. I was going to say that was present during our youth, but now it's present in a different youth, and we don't do it anymore. We do grown-up Mad Libs, which is uh, Tri-Libs, and this is just 
uh, an emulation of that process that um, takes after the style of movie that we had just watched. Um, so at the top of my Word document here on my end, I put uh, Trilib's police thriller question mark. Uh, so we will see how that goes. Um, what I'm going to do is just give you all a list of things uh, to provide for me off the top of your noggins. I'll fill those in and then we'll have a fun little story. Uh, and this time uh, we'll just go alphabetical by first name. So Aaron and then Harry and then yep. Jason. Uh, if, we're, if we're all good with that, um, I will just jump in here. Um, Aaron, with you being up first, I would like for you pretty please to give me a surname. A surname? Yeah, like a last name. Yeah, I don't want to do... Uh, well, uh, Scheider. Scheider. Uh, and you mean Scheider and not Schneider? Is that uh, correct? Yes, as oh, in right. Roy Scheider. Roy we have fun. Scheider. You're, lay- you're laying it on real thick, Aaron. Not Rob Schneider. Perfect. Excuse me, that's, that's Mr. Robert Schneider to you. Um, sure. Yeah, we can get into the backstory of Mr. Uh, Schneider uh, afterwards. But for now, moving on uh, to the next bit here. Um, Harry, could you uh, pretty please give me a city? Uh, New York City. New York City. Perfect. How um, does he come up with it? I know, Great that was question. right off the top of my head. Great question. Um, make a fucking plot to the French Connection. That would be a fun thing to do. Uh, maybe uh, this next one I will skip over um, and give Jason a different one because it was going to be a uh, previous trial of guest that isn't Ben Savard because uh, Ben Savard was uh, spoiler alert going to be on this episode. Ouch! Do I need to beat out his back name? The curtain. Uh, so I'm just gonna, uh, no, that's fine. I, for the purposes of this, I'm just going to use Ben Savard's name in the, uh, the exercise. He will be here in spirit. Uh, shout outs to Ben. Um, hope you're, you're doing well. Uh, we'll find out about that eventually, maybe, uh, for sure. Um, but Jason, what I will ask, uh, instead for you to give me is a, uh, a type of weather or like a weather descriptor. Uh, overcast. Very nice. You didn't my favorite cloudy? type of weather. <laughs> I think I, I think I see where this is going. <laughs> uh, next up, Aaron, could I get from you an adjective, please? Yes. Uh, how about obedient? Ooh. Ooh. Four syllable word. Um, excellent. Uh, that was a compliment. It didn't sound like one. Uh, Harry, from you, could I get a year, pretty please? 1971. A um Jason from you, could I please get a type of vehicle? A 1973 Javelin AMX. Javelin Holy JMX. shit. Did I Okay. You got that Are right. You a car guy? Are you secretly a car guy and we just haven't talked Jason's about Jason's kind that? of a car guy. Have we not Is talked you, about are this? You a car guy? I'm That's a Honda Fit. I don't know what's happening here. I'm showing signs sure, early onset car guy. Did Jason, did you never tell Aaron about that time that back back home and wherever the fuck you come from, you uh, refurbished that car? I never never told Aaron, uh, but it was a 1973 Javelin AMX. Yeah, turns out full circle. But that's the story of another time. 
wherever the fuck you come from should have been the city that we used uh, in this exercise. <laughs> Maybe next time. Um, can, can, next... I peel back the, can I peel back the curtain a little bit and, and yes. uh, talk, talk about my deep, terrible, and abiding ignorance, which is that I wanted to do a city from New Hampshire, but I could not think of a single one. Couldn't think of Concord. <laughs> couldn't think of uh, any other city in New Hampshire put on the spot. So I just went with, uh, with old New York. Super fair. Put on the spot. I would not have been able to come up with Concord in a million years. Uh, So that is very fair. Um, But moving along uh, back to Aaron, uh, could I please from you get a nickname? I mean, I mean, we got to we got to go either cloudy or pop. Let's let's go Popeye. Spicy. Because I'm hungry right now. Uh, hey, I, I would kill for one of those sandwiches right now, dude. No, I would. I, I would, would kill for some spinach. I think is what Aaron meant. Um, uh, sandwich. Uh, Harry, could I please get a song from you? Uh, sing one right now. Or uh, just smoke gets in your eyes by the platters. Nice. Type, type, type. Um, perfect. Uh, Jason, from you, could I please get a speed? 99 miles per hour, baby. Very, very nice. Um, Holy shit, that's fast. <laughs> I, so I don't think any, anything has gone faster than that in history. Uh, as you know, as a planet, we've kind of topped out at that. So that's that seems appropriate. Um, Aaron, uh, an animal, please. Mongoose. Nice. Uh, Harry, a fruit, please. Grapefruit, baby, the best fruit on the planet. Jesus, we can't do this. You know what? You know what this is making me realize is that if you have one person on your end locally and they're hearing you utter all these things and not hearing the rest of the conversation, this sounds like, like, like Cold War activation phrases. Yeah. I mean, it's not not right. Um, well, Gary is on a sniper. Uh, Gary has a sniper rifle on the fucking roof of his building right now. <laughs> Uh, J26 asterisk, uh, pound asterisk, uh, coming in hot to you, Jason. Could I please get from you a number? Hopefully it's the right number. Uh, wink, wink. <clears throat> a 69. <laughs> um, uh, we're leaving Aaron with all the big decisions uh, in these, and I feel like Let's there's a go. history of that, uh, yeah. which yeah, is uh, guy for intentional. Pick somebody better. <laughs> he is our leader. Really well, in the past, so I don't see the problems. Well, let's hope that continues. Uh, Aaron, from you, could I please get uh, the name of a tri love host? Uh, <laughs> uh, Harry. I am just a safe am You a Yeah. Good stuff. Um, I'm the guy who uh, dies now, aren't I? I know it. Uh, I can feel it. Uh, somewhat appropriately, Harry, throwing it back to you for an emotion. Devastated. Devastated. Um, and this is our last one here. Um, Jason, from you, can I please get the name of a movie? Which is another one I feel like you usually get stuck with. I do, don't I? Um, a goofy movie. Well, there it is. Excellent. Um, and I was better uh, prepared uh, procedurally this time, so I am all ready to go. Um, <clears throat> uh, settle in, uh, audience. Throw yourself back into your, your comfiest armchair. 
uh, pour yourself a nice uh, shot of fireball and uh, let this uh, let this come to you in ways that feel good. A short time ago, in a world resembling ours, Detective Scheider of the New York City Police Department left his office and got in his car. He was following up on a tip he got from Ben Savard earlier that day. It was overcast outside, and the city streets were as obedient as ever. It wasn't long before Detective Scheider found what he was looking for, a 1971-1973 Javelin JMX speeding down Broadway in the opposite direction. Scheider, or Popeye, as the fellas in the precinct called him, jammed a well-used cassette tape uh, into his tape deck and twisted the volume, no- volume knob excuse me, all the way to the right as smoke gets in your eyes erupted from the car's speakers. Popeye spun into a swift U-turn and hauled ass in pursuit of the suspect. Popeye was soon going a cool 99 miles per hour, baby. Suddenly, the suspect's vehicle up ahead spun out in an attempt to avoid hitting a mongoose in the middle of the road. The vehicle crashed into a grapefruit stand. Popeye would later learn that 69 grapefruits lost their lives that day. Popeye pulled the driver from the vehicle. It was Harry! Harry Mackin, specifically. Out of breath and quite devastated, Popeye opened the trunk and found himself face-to-face with thousands of copies of a Goofy movie on 4K Ultra HD Blu-ray disc. Honestly, all that sounds extremely accurate. This sounds like something Uh, I would do. Yeah, I don't think we wrote fiction this time, fellas. Uh, Harry Mackin pleaded, I only meant to share this masterpiece with others. Theft is good, actually. Popeye knew he was right, and so together, the two planned a massive free outdoor viewing party of a Goofy movie for their entire neighborhood so that art could rightfully be shared within their community. The end. Wow. This is basically the plot of The French Connection. Like, kind of? It's kind of the plot. (laughs) And also also Fast and Furious. I was stealing DVDs, essentially. That's true. That's true. You are as good at this as William Friedkin is, is what the guys are trying to say, Cody. Exactly. Uh, I I do have one question. What is a 1971-1973 automobile? The spaces I'd I'd allocated were for year and then vehicle. I see. You just decided to go with both. Very good. You didn't remove that. Very good. Good. Thank you. I'm glad that went over well. I am too. Uh, Well, thank you, Cody, for another rousing edition of Tri-Libs. Uh, you can find tickets to the French Connection playing this weekend at the Trilon at Trilon.org. You can follow our podcast at Trilove Podcast. Uh, you can follow me, Jason Daphnis, at uh, Nintendoofus. I've been Cody Narvison. You can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. I've been Harry Mackin. You can find me on Twitter at Shiitake Harry. And if anyone knows where there's a warehouse of a Goofy Movie Blu-rays, hit me up because you know what we'll do. Uh, I'm Aaron. Uh, as uh, we were recording these exit uh, in the window across from mine in my recording space office here, uh, I just saw a cat throw up on somebody's couch. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter <laughs> at RB, please. Oh, goodness, God. Good kitty. With that... Blast off, 180, 200, good housekeeping seal of approval, 210, U.S. government certified, 220, lunar trajectory, junk of the month club, sirloin steak, 230, grade A poison, absolute dynamite, 89% pure junk, best I've ever seen. If the rest of our episodes are like this, we'll be dealing on this load for two years. (laughs) 